Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. On Friday, a federal judge in San Diego struck down California's ban on assault-style guns, saying it was unconstitutional and didn't work anyway. The state is appealing the ruling, so the ban might still survive. Meanwhile, we'll examine the future and effectiveness of gun laws in California, with some of the strictest laws on the books for limiting the sale, purchase, and use of guns. Then later, Washington Post political columnist Karen Tumulty joins us to talk about her new biography of Nancy Reagan. She rewrote the role of First Lady, first in Sacramento when her husband was governor, then in the White House. We'll examine that legacy. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Well, in case you missed it, late Friday, a federal judge in San Diego struck down California's ban on assault weapons. It's been in place for more than three decades, passed in 1989. In his decision, Judge Roger Benitez wrote that the state's definition of illegal military-style rifles violated the right of law-abiding citizens to own those weapons. He also called the law, quote, a failed experiment. Governor Gavin Newsom condemned the ruling on Twitter and elsewhere immediately, and Attorney General Rob Bonta says he will appeal the decision. Joining us now to talk about the ruling are Rory Little, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. He's also a former clerk for several U.S. Supreme Court justices. Rory Little, good morning to you. Thanks. Good morning, Scott. Also with us, Garen Wintemute. He's director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. He also practices and teaches emergency medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine. Welcome to you as well. Good morning. Well, let me begin with you, Rory Little. Uh, What is the significance of this ruling? Well, it's obviously a significant ruling in that it strikes down a 30-year-old ban on what uh, we call assault weapons or AR-15 rifles and uh, various uh, attachments you can put on these rifles that make them more dangerous in the eyes of a lot of people. Um, And, you know, it's the first opinion to really do this in an exhaustive way. It's almost a 100-page opinion by this district court judge in San Diego, who who is, by the way, a well-known pro-gun federal judge. This is not his first ruling like this. And it's probably headed at least for the Ninth Circuit on Bonk, which would be a, a panel of 11 judges in the Ninth Circuit, and uh, possibly the Supreme Court. So it's a pretty significant ruling for the country in terms of gun control. Although the Supreme Court has already granted cert in a different case 
for next fall, which will also raise issues under the Second Amendment. Well, and as you said, uh, this judge is not a stranger to striking down gun laws. And that made me wonder, how do these cases get assigned? I mean, given that he is a well-known Second Amendment proponent, uh, appointed by George W. Bush uh, about 15 years ago, is it just random that it gets assigned? Or does he get these cases because he wants them or they get steered to him because of his experience on these kinds of issues? You know, it's a bit of a black box how every uh, district assigns their cases. Most districts today have a randomized wheel uh, where judges get their cases randomly. But it's very likely that he got this case because it was related to some of the other cases that he's had. In other words, once you're a district court judge and you have written in a particular area or substantive law opinion uh, has been issued under your name, parties can steer cases to judges that have experience in that area. Um, and the court can independently steer those cases to people with expertise. It makes some sense for efficiency. Uh, why make everybody learn everything from the ground up? Um, but it does tend to uh, put one judge's stamp on an area um, in a way that may not be representative of all the judges on that court, for example. And in addition to the substance of the decision striking down the law, a lot of people, including the governor, took issue with his tone. He said, among other things, and I'm quoting here, like the Swiss Army knife, the popular AR-15 rifle is a perfect combination of home defense weapon and homeland defense equipment, good for both home and battle. Uh, what did you make of the just the the wording of the decision in that in that regard? Well, I, I'm, I'm laughing, if you can see me, uh, because... Comparing, uh, you know, an AR-15 assault weapon to an, uh, a Swiss Army knife is like comparing a bicycle to a Harley Davidson. You know, they both have two wheels. They both get you from place to place, but but they're very different. And one is much more powerful than the other. Um, you know, you have to give this judge some credit. He he has some humorous lines in his opinion, but yeah, his he's not hiding the ball on his attitude. He starts this opinion pro-gun. Yeah, well, and it's, I mean, many would say that uh, humor is not really called for, given how many people have died at the hands of uh, shooters that are using these weapons. But, Karen, let me ask you about one other thing the judge said, which I alluded to at the very top, which is that the law was, it didn't work. It was a failed experiment. What's your take on that? So, thanks for asking the question. I think this is an opinion that is going to damage the credibility of the federal judiciary. Um, we, could, we could discuss whether the judge is spreading misinformation or simply lying, which I think is, is closer probably to the truth. He, but he's saying he's lying. About? But yes, but he, he leads with the point that because of this law, you can't buy an AR-15 in California. And that's simply not true. AR-15s are available for sale all over the state. We don't ban AR-15s. We regulate the design of those weapons. So we have the California AR-15 just the way we have the California car, but it's simply a mistruth, however we choose to label it, to say that we can cannot buy AR-15s. And, and to your question, um, the, the other striking uh, illogical point in just the first few pages of the uh, opinion is what you raised, that uh, his characterization of, of the, the statute as a failed experiment. His, his evidence is that 
relatively few homicides in California are committed with rifles. Well, excuse me, Judge, the law was in place. Might that not be evidence of its effectiveness, not the lack of need for it? Hmm. Well, he also, in that Swiss Army knife comment, uh, makes reference to the fact that more people are killed by knives than they are by assault rifles. And I, you know, taking, you know, the attitude, the tone, the sarcasm away from that, uh, isn't there some truth to that? The, the point that we do focus a lot as a country on these assault weapons because the crimes committed, these mass shootings are so horrific. But in fact, even if we could ban them and make them go away tomorrow, we would still have the majority of deaths and suicides uh, and homicides using other kinds of guns. Sure. Uh, let's stick with mass shooting. So just for a minute, um, and, but I want to rewind. Um, I do not think that the characterization, that the comparison uh, to Swiss Army Knife was humor on the judge's part. Um, I, I simply disagree. I think he's saying, um, as gun people often do, that the AR-15 is a tool designed for a job. The Swiss Army Knife is a tool designed for a job. They're different jobs. They're not the same job. Um, the AR-15 and weapons like it were designed for the military when it became clear that, that firepower needed to replace marksmanship in the military. And that rolled over into civilian life. And I will agree with you that the vast majority, 98 to 99%, actually, of firearm deaths in the United States do not involve public mass shootings. But let's stay just for a minute on public mass shootings, which is where these weapons play an outsized role. Put, let's take the Las Vegas shooting as an example. Put that shooter back up in that hotel room uh, with bows and arrows, with handguns. It doesn't matter. The technology makes a difference. These weapons were designed to put a, to use the vernacular, put a lot of lead downrange in a hurry. And that's what they continue to do. Hmm. Talking about the federal court decision late Friday, striking down California's ban on assault weapons and the effectiveness of gun laws generally with Rory Little, a professor at UC Hastings College of the Law, and Garen Wintemute, he's director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. This is a half-hour segment, so we'd love to hear from you now, uh, your thoughts about gun control, gun laws, the effectiveness of them, and on the decision as well. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or if you prefer, email forum at kqed.org. Um, Roy Little, um, I'm just wondering, you mentioned that this case, uh, you know, with the Attorney General Rob Bonta uh, promising to appeal is likely to end up not just at the Ninth Circuit, but at the at an en banc hearing, which is the, you know, a fuller, not just the three judge panel, but the more the full uh, array of judges and the Ninth Circuit used to be you know, pretty reliably liberal compared with other districts, not so much anymore. I mean, what impact did uh, Donald Trump have on changing the makeup, along with retirements of other judges and deaths, in some cases, have on that court? Yeah, that's a really a big question, Scott. I mean, there are a lot of new Trump appointees on the Ninth Circuit, and so the balance of 29 judges on the circuit, it's the largest circuit in the country by almost uh, twice, um, it is more evenly divided, if you want to put it that way, between people appointed by one administration or the other. Um, it is not reliably li liberal, uh, and there are certainly panels uh, that of three, they sit in panels of three usually, that could affirm this ruling. 
which is why I suggest it could possibly go directly to an en banc panel. The Ninth Circuit sits um, in big panels of 11. They have never sat in a panel of 29, uh, but they could theoretically. Um, and, 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 and this raises the question of the Trump administration made it a top priority to confirm as many judges as possible when they had the majority in the Senate. Right now, the Biden administration is not moving as quickly on judges uh, and the Democratic Senate is not moving as quickly. Their, their majority is much closer, of course. Uh, but this shows that the Biden administration really needs to get on the stick and uh, start confirming more of their nominees. A lot of the Democratic judges on the Ninth Circuit took a senior status, which opens up their spot for a new appointment. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, we'll see a lot of appointments confirmed quickly. Uh, we also expect that Stephen Breyer will retire this summer. We'll see on the U.S. Supreme Court. And of course, the administration's got to get somebody confirmed for that spot, too. It, it's so interesting it's that President Biden is taking his time because that was a criticism, especially in retrospect, of uh, Barack Obama, is that he didn't take that. He didn't make it as big a priority. I mean, hard to imagine, but they had 60 votes in the U.S. Senate uh, when he first came into office. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say that he's taking his time, but it but it is not the single thing on the agenda of the Senate. Um, and, and the Biden administration, look, has a lot on its plate. First, they had to figure out how to get the vaccine to millions of people. They've got infrastructure bills. And Biden, having been a member of the Senate for 30 years, uh, wants to do it in what he sees as the correct way, the traditional way. Uh, he's not Donald Trump. He's not going to throw over the apple cart. Uh, they are moving forward, uh, but they've got to be careful because not all the Democrats in the Senate are reliable Democrat votes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. All right, we're going to take a short break. We're going to continue our conversation with Rory Little and Garen Wintemute about gun safety, gun laws, that ruling on Friday. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Much more to come. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer talking for the rest of this half hour about a federal court striking down California's three decades old assault weapon ban on Friday and just how much that's going to matter going forward. Our guests are Rory Little, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law, and Garen Wintemute. He is the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. Again, the number to call, 866-733-6786. And let's begin in Walnut Creek. Tyler, welcome. Good morning, guys. Thank you for having my call. Um, I actually want to go back to, I, I believe the uh, professor from UC Hastings said that the round, that AR-15 replaced fire, um, marksmanship with firepower, but what I think is actually the exact opposite has happened. The platform that the AR-15, the Armalite 15 uses, 
um, the rounds they use is a two-two-three round or a five-five-six round, which have been which are very small rounds. They're more, small, more targeted rounds as opposed to in previous military engagements with the M1 Garand or a 30 carbine. What has been used has been the 30-06, which are very large rounds. Or in the spring, the uh, Lee Enfield, 30-06 rounds are very large rounds that were used previously or 30 carbine. And even like our Russian counterpart of the AK-47, they use a 7.62 by 3.9 round, and those are very small targeted rounds. Yeah. Let me Which, just you know, ask. Large military. I'm sorry. Sorry to cut you off, but you're throwing out a lot of phrases and words, and that you know a lot of gun advocates or users might not might not recognize. Garen Winnemy, can you sort of boil that down to layman's terms a bit, and you know what Tyler is saying in terms of the change of the weapons and the the ammunition, the magazines, and so on? Sure. Um, the, the generations of military rifles that preceded, and I'll just stick with the U.S., that preceded the AR platform um, were bolt action or semi-auto had a limited ammunition capacity, you had to hit what you aimed at. And the decision was made to increase ammunition capacity uh, and at, at the expense of accuracy so that one didn't have to be quite as good a shot. That was the point. And uh, Tyler, was there a question in there as well? I, I do have a comment on that because that's also still not true because the 30 carbine was the complementary rifle to the uh, M1 Garand during the engagement in the Second World War and the Korean War. And the 30 carbine had plenty of 30-round magazines that were very ubiquitous. I mean, we can still be found in anywhere else but California today. So the casual magazines were had been ubiquitous since engagement since at least the Second World War. So the internal magazine you're talking about in the M1 Garand has an eight-round capacity of 30-06. And the 30 carbine, 30-round magazine is detachable all day long. Or even the Thompson submachine gun, which is uses a um, 45 ACP round, hmm. small pistol rounds, 100-round drums, found all day long. They're, yeah. they're easy to find, very ubiquitous. Tyler, so thanks these, for it. So this is not has changed. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And uh, obviously, I think a lot of people would say all those things are true, and there's just too many options uh, if you want to fire some lead into a group of people or, uh, you know, it's, uh, there are a lot of law abiding users, of course, the vast majority of guns, but just the proliferation of them is a whole separate issue. Uh, let's go from Tyler to Paul in Santa Rosa. Welcome. Hi there. Um, I, I just wanted to say that I, I think, the what, what gets lost in this argument quite often is the fact that, um, you know, the second amendment was written as a protection uh, of the people against the government. Um, this was written by the founders who had just fought a war against their own government and knew that that might be necessary again. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's famous for writing that, you know, a little revolution every once in a while is a good thing. Um, I think that it is, uh, it's, it's essential for democracy for any government to fear its populace. And if you take away any weapon that our government might fear, then um, that, that, that is not going to happen. Yeah. Rory Little, uh, if you want to comment on that, but also uh, just the, the notion, uh, maybe respond a little bit to Dr. Winnemute in terms of the effectiveness of these laws. I mean, this was a trial that uh, took evidence from both sides, and uh, the judge came down where he did. Uh, did, he, did he ignore the evidence, or did he embrace it in writing his decision? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is, uh, as your caller Tyler sort of indicates, there is so many layo- layers of complication here. You can go deep, deep, deep down. Um, this case really goes back to 
the 2008 decision by the Supreme Court in Heller, which basically found for the first time in close to 200 years, over 200 years, that there's an individual right to possess a gun in the home for self-defense. Now, really, the AR-15 is not useful, um, as useful as a a pistol might be in in your home for self-defense. But this, this judge did hold a trial, took it a lot of evidence. His opinion is 94 pages long. He makes some good points statistically about whether banning an AR-15 or reducing the features available on an AR-15 does any good or not. It hasn't stopped mass shootings. It hasn't stopped people using uh, these rifles. You can still, there are hundreds of thousands of these rifles in circulation in California. Um, So it's very complicated. It's really a question about the meaning of the constitution. Either our democracy allows us to control guns in a way that the majority of the people want to control guns, or it doesn't. And that's going to be the question for the Supreme Court. Um, If the California people and the legislature want to ban a particularly dangerous gun, which is used in a lot of mass killings, uh, they ought to be able to, even under the Second Amendment. I will say in 2008, the Supreme Court started on page 54 of their opinion, uh, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Mm. Then there's a list of limitations that even the majority in that case, the conservative majority, found to be true. So uh, there are limitations, and why this particular limitation should be struck down um, is going to be hotly debated. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much for the call. Here's a comment from Douglas who writes, uh, if California has the most mass shootings in the nation, how many of them are automatic weapons? Garen, you want to take that one? Sure. Uh, we, uh, if we're talking about public mass shootings, um, we do have the highest number, but we also have a very, very large population. The, the state with the second highest number has a population-based rate that is twice ours. Um, and I'll just add on that, um, we, a, a lot of laws in play, not just this one. California ranks 29 out of 50 states for firearm homicide. We are below the median. And we are 46 out of 50 ranked from top to bottom for suicide. We're actually doing a pretty good job. Now, the the comment asked how many involve automatic weapons. Um, A, that answer is not known. uh, And B, we're not talking about automatic weapons today. Uh, What do you mean? Because isn't that what the decision is? Automatic weapons are machine guns. I see. Um, the AR-15 that we're talking about, the civilian AR-15, is a semi-automatic weapon, and we're back into the technical rabbit hole. I can explain the difference if you want. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, let's read some other comments here. Marv writes, what good are laws if we don't enforce them? A few years ago, I helped write a guy uh, helped a guy move from New Mexico back to California. He had rifles and a shotgun. We came into California. No one even came out to talk to us. Uh, hard to believe illegal guns are any harder uh, getting across st- state lines. And, and Garen Winnemute, we also have laws like red flag laws that enable family members and I think now even employers to ask a, a judge to confiscate guns from people that they think are dangerous. We have restraining orders uh, uh, against people who are uh, involved in domestic violence. I mean, to the point of the, of the listener there, uh, we should be doing a much better job of enforcing those laws, right? Sure. So interstate trafficking first. Um, if the guns come in across the state and nobody knows, no, nobody's going to knock at the door. There, there is a requirement 
that guns brought into the state um, be uh, made known to DOJ. There are well-described uh, interstate trafficking uh, pathways that bring guns into California. I'll give an example from personal observation. Go to a gun show in Reno and 31%, I'm the guy in the parking lot walking around, 31% of the cars are from California. Um, but I'm not the only person walking around. And if you have a California car and you load up stuff that's prohibited in California and you drive back across the border, you're going to be encountered when you enter uh, California on Interstate 80. Now, to gun violence restraining orders, um, that we just published a study about them last week. Um, the problem with, with GVROs, as we call them, is most people don't know that they exist. That's our fault, not their fault. Um, but in this study, we told people what these orders were and asked them, do you think this is a good idea? And would you use one uh, in appropriate circumstances? And once they knew what it was, 70 to 80 percent of the population said, sure, um, they're a good idea. And yes, I would use one. And support was higher among gun owners than among others. And to mass shootings, we have a series of 21 that we've published and there are more um, mass shooting, threatened mass shooting cases um, in which gun violence restraining orders were requested and issued. Guns were recovered, purchases were blocked, and none of those 21 threatened mass shootings occurred. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break and uh, move to a different topic. But before that, Garen Winnemute, I want to ask you, uh, the legislature passed a bill that requires the attorney general sh uh, to share data on gun violence with UC Davis, with your institute, I believe. And uh, former Attorney General Becerra did not do that, but the new AG, Rob Bonta, already has. Uh, what is that going to allow you to do that you couldn't do before? So the, the state also created and funded a, a, a center to do research on firearm violence to help inform conversations like this one. We are that center. Um, it was deeply ironic that the former attorney general cut off access to much of the data that made that work possible. And it's an open bet what's going to happen now that he's secretary of health and human services. But yes, um, data are flowing. We are studying the impact of gun violence restraining orders of the state's program to recover guns from uh, prohibited persons. Yeah. Etc. All right. We're going to leave it there. Garen Wintemute, Director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. Thanks so much. And thanks also to Rory Little, as always, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. I want to mention that tomorrow night at 6 on KQED, we're going to broadcast a statewide report, Gun Violence in California. KQED's Marisa Lagos and Katie Orr from our politics team will host a discussion analyzing this decision and its potential impact on the state's gun laws. And whether California's strict gun regulations are actually achieving their goals. Again, that's tomorrow night on KQED Radio at 6 o'clock. I'm Scott Schaefer. We're going to take a really short break and come right back with political columnist from the Washington Post, Karen Tumulty. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.